If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for December 1st, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Don't forget about our other podcast, which is more directly political, involving news surrounding the Donald Trump administration. That's called the Individual One Podcast. You can find that in a variety of ways, but the best way to do so would be to go to our website, which is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's freespeechbroadcasting.com. Another good episode of that podcast is out today as well. Episode number 73 takes a look at how it is and why it is that Donald Trump will not be removed from office once he is impeached. Now, as you might uh, get the idea from our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com, the issue of free speech is near and dear to my heart. I wrote a book about the topic way ahead of its time called The Death of Free Speech back in 2005. Don't worry, you didn't read it because hardly anyone else did either. So don't feel badly about that, although I think you'd still find it somewhere online. Uh, But it was way ahead of its time because I was very concerned even back in 2004, 2005 as a talk show host at KFI in Los Angeles that our free speech rights, if not legally, at least from a cultural perspective, were being greatly infringed upon. The future was looking very bleak because young people were not growing up with the same reverence for free speech as a concept or the First Amendment as a foundational uh, element of our Constitution, obviously the First Amendment being the first for a reason, that that was not being transferred down to the next generation. And the best evidence of this was what's going on on our college campuses. College campuses used to be places where free speech was most dramatically held up as a virtue, regardless of what your beliefs were, that this was a place where free expression was embraced. And that has not been the case for quite a while, but it's getting worse and worse and worse. And I believe post-Donald Trump, it's gotten almost catastrophic because the left, which dominates most of academia, has, let's face it, lost their minds in a lot of ways. And so I was very uh, eager to watch a a new documentary called No Safe Spaces, 
starring Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager because it deals directly with this issue, free speech in general, but specifically what's going on on college campuses and how the thought police are really taking over and how our free speech rights, both in theory and maybe even in practice, maybe even in reality, this is bleeding over into our laws, are very much in peril. And so one of the advantages of living in the Los Angeles area is that, one, you get to go to a premiere every once in a while, and two, you might even get to interview the people who are in the movie because a lot of them live in this area. And so this happened with regard to this film, uh, No Safe Spaces. I went to the premiere here in Los Angeles uh, a couple of weeks ago, and one of the two stars, Adam Carolla, Adam Carolla, who you hopefully know as a, uh, a podcasting legend, a, a former uh, radio show host. He's been on numerous major television shows. He's really kind of got a unique place in the media landscape. Uh, I, he's definitely right-leaning, but he's certainly not a, a right-wing nut job by any stretch of imagination. He still has a lot of cachet in the mainstream world, the mainstream media world. I mean, he's been on Dancing with the Stars, The Apprentice, uh, he, The Man Show with uh, uh, with Jimmy Kimmel was how one of the first uh, things that he did nationwide. I mean, he's extremely well-known, and he's very, very good. He's a very funny guy, a smart guy. And um, as you'll hear in a moment when we play an interview that I taped earlier this week with him, my wife is also a huge fan of Adam Carolla's. Uh, I'm a big fan, but my wife, my wife is not a fan of my work at all. <laughs> Hardly ever listens to anything I do, which, by the way, has, a, has an advantage. There's advantages to that. But uh, she listens to almost everything that Adam Carolla does, which I reference in this interview. But earlier this week, I had a chance to go to his studios. He didn't come to our studios, which I'll also reference in this interview. I go to his studios uh, for a half-hour interview about this new documentary, which I urge you to see, called No Safe Spaces. The movie is No Safe Spaces. The stars are Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager. I'm with Adam Carolla now. And Adam, normally I would uh, thank someone for joining me on my podcast or my show, but this is a little bit of an unusual situation. I'm doing this interview from your studio, so I guess I should be thanking you for inviting me here. Thank you, John. And uh, when did I see you at the premiere a few weeks ago? Yes. That, when did I see you at the part? Well, after part, I think we were talking. The, we talked very briefly at the after party, and uh, we had a very nice conversation. And then you just simply drifted off, as uh, Dr. Drew says you often do. I, uh, my schedule for that day, my schedule's been insane. So I'm sure after the party and after the whatever and after whatever, I just went, took off. <laughs> I, I, did not ta- I did not take it personally. I've, I've been in your situation before, premieres of my movies. I get it. Uh, and no offense taken. I will say one of the dis- disclaimer as we begin this interview, you, you may not recall this, but my wife is one of your biggest fans, and she claims that you taught her what she knows about sex. Oh, so well, you're welcome. Well, Uh-oh. you know, I'm married now, so it's kind of hard for me to remember um, mm. whether or not that was a good thing or a bad thing. But, you know, when you have two kids, that's the way it works. I, I never, uh, I never, you know, it's funny. Whenever it says, you know, so-and-so is your biggest fan, I always go, no, nah, I always push that stuff out of my brain. I, never I know. She, she told me you would do that, by the way. I, <laughs> I've already done it. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the movie. Um, I saw it. I liked it. I think it's a very important film. I have a few issues with it as well, which hopefully we'll get into. But how did this film come about, and why do you think it's important for people to see it? 
Um, I was uh, working on and off with Dennis Prager. We were doing some speaking engagements and things like that. People gave us an opportunity or we were approached. Do you want to work on this film together? I was like, I didn't really know what it was. I was just like, yeah, I love working with Dennis. He's got a lot of wisdom. I've always found him an interesting guy and and also a, a very jovial, friendly guy to spend time with. So I was like, well, he's a guy I like spending time with. And I guess if you made a film, you'd spend some time with the person you're making the film with. So it seems like an excuse just to kind of hang out with uh, Prager. Also, it, it ain't rocket science with me. Like I do People come up to me and they go, hey, do you want to be involved with this project? And I go, what is it? And they go, oh, it's a film, it's a doc about free speech or whatever. And I go, okay. <laughs> like it's, uh, sounds, sounds, uh, sounds like a good enough idea. There was no focus grouping or anything like that going on? Not, nothing scientific? I'm not really. I, I, I think people think it was uh, – I, I don't think people realize how insanely – casual I am about my approach to my career. I think people say to me all the time, they go like, why do you do dance with the stars or why'd you do whatever? And I go, they asked me to do it. And I go, yeah, but what made you want to do it? And I go, I didn't want to do it. They just, they said, do you want to do it? And I said, okay. Like I sounded like an experience. Sound like a thing to look back on or have, have something different than what I was doing, you know, so that's kind of how I am. Like you come up to me and you go, here's a project. You want to do this? You know, I've written, I'm on my fifth book. Like people go like, what made you decide to write a book? I'm like, I never decided to write a book. Somebody came to me and goes, you want to write a book? And I went, okay. <laughs> well, it's worked out pretty well for you. And I think it worked well for you on this film. And so give us the kind of the premise. You said it's about free speech. No safe spaces kind of says a lot of different things in the title. Give us, give us your premise of the film. Um, it's just that, uh, people should be able to exchange ideas without fear of, you know, losing their job or being reprimanded. And my feeling is as long as the ideas are ideas, then you should exchange them. If that, if it's beyond an idea, if you're just sort of saying this group should be locked up and they should throw away the key or, you know, are enslaved or burden somehow or something, then that's not really an idea. My feeling is like, if it's an idea, you should be able to express that idea. And then we should be able to sort of test it, look at it, decide if it's a good idea or not shut it down before we hear it. You know, it's like you take just a simple subject like school vouchers. It's like, Mm -hmm. you can't pass that idea off here. You're called, I don't know what you're called, But my feeling is like, why don't we try to remove all the political power from it and really just discuss whether a voucher or charter schools would be effective or not. And then once we decide, we'll either do it or we won't, but we can't do it if you're yelling at the people who are floating the idea for vouchers and calling them racist or or whatever it is you're calling them. So my thing is like school vouchers and school choice is an idea. I think it's effective. But I don't know. But unless we have a discussion and do some trials and some testing and look at some numbers, we're never really going to figure this out. In the meantime, the people that benefit from it may not get that benefit as long as everyone's shouting at each other. 
I wrote a book called The Death of Free Speech back in 2005 when I was on uh, KFI here in Los Angeles. Uh, don't worry. I know you didn't read it because no one else did either. Mm-hmm. But it's, this is a very passionate topic for me. And one of the things that fe- I think people lose is a lot of people say, well, wait a minute. There's a difference between free speech and the First Amendment. And there is. There's an important difference. But your film does a really good job of making the case, hold on. We are eroding the support, especially among young people, especially in college, for the entire concept of free speech and that this bleeds into First Amendment protections, specifically with regard to things like hate speech or hate crime legislation, where if you create this loophole for supposed hate speech, if the people uh, who are determining what's hate speech – disagree with you, you're screwed, and that this is how the First Amendment will eventually erode into nothing. Uh, could you expound upon that, that concept, and do you agree that your, your film does do a, a good job in, in articulating that issue? Well, I'm not going to poo-poo a compliment, so I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, I think the film does a good job of addressing that. Well, how um, important is that? I mean, because that, that's what makes people go, okay, wait a minute, this might impact me as opposed I don't, to— I, I'm not—first off, I, I'm, I, I wonder aloud at, uh, at people's ability to become obsessed with people, mo- their motivations, what's in their heart, what kind of person they are. If I have a neighbor, if somebody says to me, you have a neighbor— And I go, oh, yeah, Bill, my neighbor, he's a good guy. He takes his trash out. He does. He mows his lawn. He's watched my kids. He's a thoughtful guy. Yeah. Well, he has a dark heart. Like he has hatred in his heart. I'd go, okay. well, he's never expressed it. So all I know is he's paying his taxes. He's mowing his lawn and he puts on a barbecue at the cul-de-sac and he gives the money to charity. Yeah. Well, he's a bad person. I go, I don't I don't care. I don't, I, you got to act bad. At a certain point, you have to do something. You know, this notion of like this person said this or this person has a dark heart or this person has this personality or whatever it is. I'm not in, I'm not interested. I'm only interested in how people act. I don't care what people say. I care what they do. And if you're a good person and you raise your family and you pay your taxes and you're a good neighbor and you're a good citizen, then I, you can think whatever you want to think. I don't I'm not interested in what's in your Heart. I'm not interested. Oftentimes I say, you can call this guy an arsonist all you want. If he never strikes a match, then I'm not interested in what you're calling him. I I need, I need to stop the guys that are starting the fires, not the guys who, you know, are arsonists in their heart. And what you're saying is, is is dead on because what you're saying is, hold on. If you're trying to figure out what's in someone's heart and therefore you, you want to punish hatred. This is a slippery slope from which there's no coming back because, first well, yeah. of all, how do you do that? How do you do that? And, sec- <laughs> and, and second of all, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, inherently subjective. Right. And, and- yes. And, and I remember – I do remember stopping. I remember sort of like going, oh, I got to mark, mark the twine here when – I got to circle this on the calendar. I remember very specifically – it was – four years ago and my daughter I had said something to her that upset her she was uh nine and she was going off to school and I said something like hey if this room's not clean by the time or whatever whatever some parent some dad thing right and I didn't yell at her and I didn't raise a hand I didn't do any of that but 
I told her like, hey, you better take care of this or whatever that, no uncertain terms. And she didn't like it. And she was sort of walking to the car and mama was saying, get in the car, we're going to be late. And she was, you know, she was tattling me out to my wife. Like, he's mean. And he said, whatever. And I said, uh, I didn't do anything wrong to you. I didn't do anything to hurt you. I told you you need to clean your room or you're going to be whatever. And she's like, she's like, I'm hurt and I'm upset and I'm whatever. And I said, well, you don't need to be hurt. You don't need to be upset and you shouldn't be upset and you shouldn't be hurt. Cause I didn't say anything. There's whatever you got to clean your room. And at a certain point, my wife said, Hey, if she says she's hurt and she's upset and that's in her heart, then it is, then it is. Cause that's the way she feels. How can you deny how she feels? And I said, cause she's incorrect and her feelings are off. She feels wrong. It's wrong. And she goes, but that's the way she feels. So it is. And I remember thinking, Oh, I think we just jumped the shark. I think that's where we're at now. And I don't care if you feel like this. It doesn't mean it is. My wife was doing a kind of an ultimate math in her head that like she feels hurt, thus she is hurt, thus you hurt her. My feeling is I'm not saying she doesn't feel hurt, but I didn't hurt her. That's her business. Wow. You have just put your finger on the absolute fundamental issue here, which is that the uh, there are forces in this country, especially in academia, especially on the left, who believe that if someone's feelings are hurt, that's the same as assault, right. that there's no difference between a physical assault and a, an emotional assault. And once you accept that premise, it's over, isn't it? Well, you know, I was just laughing on my podcast earlier in the day because I was saying this whole scuttlebutt with the Cleveland player and the Pittsburgh player, and now there's some racial epithets tossed out, or is there or isn't there? And it's funny that the news and the sports journalists and and folks calling radio shows from Cleveland and they're defending, he said something racial and he said something. And the news like, well, if he did, that's a different situation. And we may have said something and we're keep, everyone keeps going around and around. And I keep saying, um, hello, you're not allowed to bonk someone on the head with a helmet if they said something racial. So you're, you're going to win this argument by going, he did say something. Right? It's like, you're never going to win the argument because I have footage of him assaulting the guy with the helmet. <laughs> And we've now come to a place where we're, they're looking at this as a viable, right. like, if we can prove he said something at the bottom of that pig pile, right. if he said something racial, then this guy should be reinstated. And it's like, no, he hit the other person with a object. But, but Adam, you recognize that especially for people under the age of, say, 30 or 35, those are the new rules. That's what they've been taught. I, I do realize that it is not a good place to be. I think it's a. This is one of the reasons why your film and No Safe Spaces is so important. Now, in the film, to me, the strongest part is is in the middle, towards the end, where you get into specific stories of people who have experienced this in real life. Do you have a favorite for you in the in the film? Well, the evergreen situation with the professors. I always like. You know, you can listen to. Ben Shapiro or Dennis Prager say whatever they want to say, but obviously they're conservative voices. To me, it's getting a hold of the 
liberal voices and the left-leaning voices and the democratic voices and hearing their stories and, and what has happened to them. And the young woman, I guess she went to a, she worked at a Canadian university, but her bringing in tapes of like showing clips of Jordan Peterson talk about stuff and the, she getting pulled into the chancellor's office or whatever and yelled at and like explain that you can't do this. And she's like, these, these, and, and, and the part where the, the Dean for lack of a better term said, these are kids. You can't do this to them. And she's like, they're not kids. They're 18. They're adults. They're adults. And the guy's like, yeah, they're, yeah, they're 18, but come on, they're kids. You know, it's like, Almost admitting right. Lindsay Shepard, thank you for the help on the screen. Um, I thought, God, that's terrifying. And she was getting yelled at and, she, and or, or, you know, she disciplined. And she was like, I didn't do anything. I brought in ideas. And you, mm. and, it, and, it, and it somehow traumatized kids to hear ideas. Right. And you want me to stop bringing in ideas to a university? It's crazy, but that's where we are. And you mentioned the political divide. You cannot avoid the political divide in this debate. And I, I do have to ask you, one of the things that ran through my mind during this this film is that a lot of what you document occurs in the last three or so years in academia. And I kept uh, joking to myself, well, gee, I, I wonder what happened about three years ago that might have triggered the left in such an extreme way that they would go bananas. And you never mention... The name uh, you mentioned it one time, and no one else ever mentions the name Donald Trump. And clearly, uh, a lot of the episodes that are, uh, are are documented in your film occur because the left has gone mad in response to Donald Trump. Yet I think I think so. Although I don't know if you know, I don't know. I I feel like Ann Coulter and Ben Shapiro are having a hard time speaking their mind on campus pre. Trump. But yes, this is now turbocharged or supersized right. or added right. creatine to whatever the mix is. I, yes. Absolutely. And so I, I, I found this to be, as a, as a conservative Trump critic, I found this to be an interesting issue that you had to deal with in the film. Because, first of all, Trump, I view as an anti-free speech guy. I mean, he mm. wants to expand libel laws. He, he, it, the, the whole, everything in the news is fake news. Uh, he said things that I believe that are, are antithetical to the First Amendment. Yet, you know, you're co-starring with Dennis Prager, so you're trying to appeal to generally a pro-Trump audience. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, Prager, while a never Trumper, was never a Trump fan. At least initially, he was. He had him last on his list of uh, presidential candidates when there were 15, he mm -hmm. was 15th. Um, once he became president, I think Prager was like, well, I'm Republican, so I'll support whoever the Republican or whoever the nominee is. I think that's where he came. So I don't think he was not a never Trumper, but he also was not a fan. I, he's I would, on board I, now, I, I would say. He's, he's on board on, now. He's on board now because I think he likes some of his conservative decisions. Um, but he'll be the first guy to tell you, like, he's pompous and shouldn't tweet and, and lies and stuff like that. If you ask Breaker, sure. like, oh, does Trump lie? I'll go, yeah, he lies. And that's not even really my, my focus of my question. My focus of my question is the, the, the balancing act that you as a filmmaker have to do between... 
uh, let's say, making a film that might have more impact and appeal to the people that you're really targeting, which is more on the left, and making a film that people will want to see because you're appealing to people on the right. That's a tough balancing act, is it not? I guess. I mean, we started the film, I must have been right around when Trump took office. And I don't know if it was like intentionally, if it was sort of intentional to leave Trump out and just sort of focus on the subject without with 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 I, I, I guess I I've never even brought it up and I've never even thought about it. But I, I suppose if you'd said to the filmmakers, why no more? Why no Trump mm-hmm. in, in the movie? They'd probably go because that immediately does one thing to one side and one thing to the other side. And we didn't want to evoke that. Mm-hmm. That re- reaction, good or bad. Like, I don't, I, I feel, I don't want to speak for them, but I will hypothesize for them, which is they probably didn't want to show his image and bring that out or turn it into that or immediately make people go, I like this or I hate this. Let me take this out of the theoretical into the practical. And uh, I have no idea how you're going to take this, but it, I, I intend it as a compliment, which I know you hate. Uh, I I think I like compliments. Uh, no, I, I just I, forget about that. I, I think I, I have no issue with Dennis Prager in the film, but if this film was maybe between you and Van Jones, black CNN liberal commentator, he sat right where you're sitting. Right, right. It's, he's in the film, but if yes. this was all you guys, to me, you would have something that could have real impact because then it would be welcome on college campuses and the left would go, Hey, wait a minute. Maybe we are going a little too crazy here. Uh, Yeah. It may, it may be on the other hand, they will quickly dismiss those amongst who are formerly amongst their ranks. If they're not (laughs) in lockstep with them, I mean, you think Van Jones could get canceled for doing something like that. I think Van Jones, if he started talking about letting Ben Shapiro speak at Berkeley or Ann Coulter or something like that, could be uh, clipped in in or or or. That's that's sad. Well, well, I'm think I'm sort of thinking like it's like Dershowitz was in the film. I mean, Dershowitz is a poster child for the left his entire his entire life. And lately, he's pro-Trump. I mean, he's a Trump fan now. Well, I think he's. Well, he voted for Clinton. No, but I he's think. but he's but he's been supporting him on impeachment and that kind of thing. I mean, just to me, Van- but I don't think I see. I don't think Dershowitz is supporting. It's like the L, the the ACLU wanted to let the Klan or the Nazis march and. Mm. whatever scope scope whatever scochi scochi whatever it was right i don't think there were fans of nazis or or white supremacists i think there were fans of mm-hmm. a country where they were able to express themselves and right. i think dershowitz if you asked him would say that i don't know what he in might his say heart. that but i don't know he also likes getting on fox news channel adam well <laughs> he, he, he's look he's got books to sell like no <laughs> doubt about it and i don't I don't know him, right. but I would say he would probably say I would support 
anybody who I thought was being unduly treated by the the, the government. Let me ask you one other uh, semi prickly question because uh, mm-hmm. I I know you're a cynic and I know you're you're super smart and I know you get the way this business works. Uh, But one of the things I kept thinking during the film was, all right, it's terrible what they're doing to Ben Shapiro and Ann Coulter and Milo Annapolis and Dennis Prager. But they love it. It helps their business. There's a business of being a martyr, especially on the right, where it's far better for you to be protested and maybe shut down than if you speak at a campus and 15 people show up. Is that not accurate? Well, I think it probably – it probably – is different. That's a good question. I think it's it varies from person to person. Um, Dennis Prager, as I know him, wants to share his ideas with everybody, and he started an online college, essentially called Prager U. And some of those some of those five minute videos have been flagged. I don't think he's happy about that. Right. I think he wants everyone to hear those ideas. I agree with that. And I think he wants to get that message out. And also, he doesn't have much P.T. Barnum in him. You know, like people sometimes say, oh, you get all this attention or you love it or whatever. It kind of depends on your wiring. I think Milo Yiannopoulos comes out there. I feel like he's a provocateur. He says things that are intentionally chucking a rock at a beehive. He knows it's going to get a reaction. And then his name gets out there Um, for good or for bad. We know the name Milo Yiannopoulos. I think Mm -hmm. if he had, you know, thoughts that were a little less provocative, we wouldn't know the name. So I kind of think it's a, it's, it's a case by case basis. You know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Ben Shapiro's a intentional provocateur, but it's also, of course, it's it's helped his business. Like you, you, you take these people, you turn them into this, then there's an uprising the other way, and it it goes. You know, you could say the same for Colin Kaepernick. He's done this. He's done that. Percent. He's gotten everybody fired in his name. He's sold a billion dollars worth of Nikes. Like that. That's the society we're living in. Um, I personally don't think that way. Or like you know, people say that the 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 fault the most false thing that people would ever say about me is when they go, "He said this. He knew what that would." I don't know about anything. I just say what I feel. I'm not interested in provoking someone into listening to me or buying one of my books. You are who you are, better for worse, and that's it. And I don't have enough. I I don't have. I don't have enough thoughts about myself to think that way. Like I'm not good enough to go. This is going to elicit this reaction. Then you're going to get a lot of ink, and you're going to stir things up. Uh, but some people are that way. Oh, yes. And, and, yes, I, I agree. And our, in, our, in our final minutes, there's one element of the film that I don't really see as political. Uh, it's not a left-right. It's a popular versus unpopular, popular versus politically incorrect, if you will, which sometimes get to, gets to be left-right because the left gets to decide what's popular, especially on campus, and, and, what's, uh, and what's not popular. Uh, but – but taking this out of the theoretical into the practical, I see this now also as an issue, not just a free speech, Adam, on political lines, but you're not even allowed to make an unpopular case 
like, for instance, in defending someone who's accused of sexual abuse or something like that. You're not even allowed. You're not even allowed to tell the other side of the climate change issue because you're a bad person. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how that relates to the film, the, the issues of shutting down the other side because, you know what, you're unpopular, we're the ones making the rules, and we're going to shut you up? Well, I, I feel like whether it's climate change or a court and somebody who's been me tooed, um, let's put them in court, let's get all the evidence, and let's render a decision. Um Deciding in advance they're a bad person is not really a good way to get to a just decision. Um, if you want to deal with something like climate change, then we're going to have to figure out what's going on, what do we want to do, what's feasible. Um, and then if you start including, like, let's say nuclear into the mix, I'll go, okay, well, th- you're being intellectually honest because, you know, I'm not a fan of nuke and you're not a fan of nuke, but we agree that it's reasonably safe and reasonably clean and might buy us 10, 20 years. And so I know if you say no nukes, then it's like, uh, all right, now I know, I know you don't want to have this debate because, and you've, you've called me a bad person because I, I am for it. I'm not for it because I work in the industry or have family members in the industry. I it I find I've I've talked to many scientists. It's, it's a clean way of creating fuel. And in 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 the courtroom, you know, there's a difference between uh, Weinstein and Al Franken. And when when Matt Damon announces that very obvious point that there is in fact a difference between these two men and how they acted toward women, and you wish him out into the cornfield, I don't think you're helping your case. I I believe there is a great difference between what Weinstein did, and that doesn't mean I'm a fan of what Al Franken did. I'm saying let's at first just agree that there are, you know, there's murder, there's aggravated assault, there's manslaughter. Let's try to decide what is going on first. And let's also let the, the the guy who's been accused at least have a say, at least yes. be able to talk, at least be able to defend themselves. And I think we're in a dangerous spot where that's not even being allowed to happen. And uh, and, and taking this back into the political real fast, I, I'm curious, did you happen to see what happened at the Harvard-Yale game this past uh, weekend, just, after we're, just before we're doing this interview? There was a climate change protest at halftime, which right. delayed the game for over an hour. And almost caused it to be turned into a tie because the stadium doesn't have lights. And it went to double overtime. Interesting. And Yale Yale came within one play of losing the Ivy League title because their students protested climate change. Uh, And uh, and this was insanity on every possible level. It it, it fit exactly with what you're saying in the book, ironically, because even though it's a pro-free speech protest, it's only pro-free speech. The, The campus only let it happen because it was on the right side of the issue. Right. If it had been pro-life, there's not a chance in the world Yale would have allowed that protest right. to delay the game for, for an hour. Taking this into the political realm, I, and I've written about this for Mediate. I think issues like this help Trump because I think political correctness is the fuel of his rocket ship because I think people are tired of it. And I think they see this kind of stuff and they go, don't mess with our lives like this. And they go, you know what? I don't like him. But it's better than the alternative. What do you make of that theory? I agree. I You talked about uh, the protesting, helping Milo Yiannopoulos sell more books. 
Um, I agree. And I agree this kind of stuff helps Trump. And the more of these things that take place or the more, you know, Elizabeth Warren talks about taxing everybody and, you know, free everything, I you're playing right into his hand. You're literally helping the man secure the next election. The movie No Safe Spaces starring Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager. Adam, how, how's the best, what's the best way for people to see the film? Uh, I believe you can go to nosafespaces.com and you can find out where it's playing near you. And you can also go to chassis.com and see all of my uh, racing docs because it's not all safe spaces and conversations. Once in a while, you got to burn a little vulcanized rubber and some fossil fuel. And I got a lot of racing car. We got the real story on Carol Shelby and the real story on uh, Ford V Ferraris in there and all that stuff. So um, avail yourself of some of that. Take a break from the politics. Sounds good. Thanks so much for your time, Adam. Thanks, John. So thanks again to Adam Carolla for his time. Always fun to hang out with him. I've been on his podcast before talking about the Penn State, uh, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky situation. And and we've had some other interactions in the past. Uh, He's an interesting guy. Very, very smart. And uh, I do hope you'll check out the movie because the movie is very important. As I indicated in the interview, I do have a few problems with it. Uh, I wish, frankly, he would have done it with Van Jones and not Dennis Prager because then that that would be a movie that the left might actually pay attention to. But I get we live in a world where you got to make a buck. you got to be able to make the money back. And Dennis Prager has an audience. And so that's partially why I was trying to go in that direction during the interview to, to get Adam's take on that. It's interesting that this happened this week because we did that interview on Monday of this past week. And then on uh, Wednesday, the night before Thanksgiving, boy, this really pissed me off. I got an email from a reporter from The Federalist. And this will show you just how absurd things have gotten when it comes to free speech being imperiled. The Federalist is an allegedly conservative uh, online uh, outlet. They're now very pro-Trump, but they pretend to be very much about constitutional principles and the law. Uh, But of course, now everything's either pro-Trump or against Trump, and they've totally embraced Trump. And I don't even know how this originated, but this is a totally true story that I think will blow your mind. I, I got an email from a reporter from The Federalist. I'm not going to tell you her name because I, uh, for a number of reasons, but it was a female reporter who um, very rudely, and again, this is the day before Thanksgiving, uh, very rudely says, I'm, I'm writing a story about you, John, and your, I'm a paraphrasing, and I'm probably being too kind, and your uh, skepticism of the Holocaust. Uh, and she asks me, uh, do I believe the Holocaust happened? And how many people do I think actually died? And then she references why she's asking me this for a story she's writing for The Federalist. And she sends me a link to a tweet that I sent in response to a Twitter feed, a, t- a Twitter thread, back in 2014. Okay, so this is over five years ago. Now, the five-year thing is important not just because that's a long time ago and there 
theoretically should be a statute of limitations on these things. But more importantly than that, in 2014, Twitter only allowed 140 characters in a tweet. Today, they allow all of 280 characters in a tweet. So in, in, in 2014, in 140 characters, she sends me this tweet that I guess somehow somebody convinced her indicated that I'm some sort of a Holocaust denier, which to be 100%, 1,000% clear, I am not. The Holocaust happened. It was horrible, horrific, one of the, the worst episodes in human history. I'm embarrassed as a person of German descent that it occurred. I obviously had nothing to do with it. I was born well after it. Uh, my father had nothing to do with it. He was seven years old in Germany when he came over to this country so that his father could work for the U.S. government in the space program. Uh, so, yes, the Holocaust happened. But here's what the this tweet was all about. Some uh, professor was getting criticized back in 2014 because he had questioned the the very uh, well-known number of 6 million Jews who had been killed in the Holocaust. And, I, and you know, I have no idea who this guy is, right? I'm, I'm looking at this story, and I'm going, well, wait a minute. Uh, he does not appear to be a Holocaust denier. Uh, he appears to be just questioning the number 6 million. Now, I have no dog in this hunt. I, I have no reason to doubt that the number was somewhere around 6 million. But I'll tell you one thing I do believe that if we're going to have any semblance of academic freedom, people ought to be able to at least question a number that is rounded off to a million, to a million without risking their jobs and their reputations. I mean, if we care about the truth, I mean, if someone said, uh, by the way, you know, because like 9 11, uh, it's perceived that 3,000 people died in 9 11. That's the number that's always thrown out there. Well, it's not actually 3,000. And, and, and frankly, I, I think there's still a debate on what the actual number is. I've heard the uh, the official number below 3,000. I've seen the official number bo uh, above 3,000. It doesn't matter. 3,000 or so people died. It was horrific uh, and, and tragic and everything. I mean, it doesn't diminish it at all. If you're trying to figure out the actual number, then the truth ought to matter. And you ought to be able to, if you care about that number, I don't know what value it necessarily has as long as you're in the right ballpark. But if you care about the truth, then then no one would, I don't think anybody would be uh, raked over the coals if they said, well, wait a minute, there's actually a little bit more, a little less than 3,000 deaths related to 9-11. But for some reason, when it comes to the Holocaust, this 6 million number is treated as so sacred that if you even question it, somehow you get lumped in with Holocaust deniers. And again, this is a number that is rounded to a million, not a thousand, not ten thousand, not a hundred thousand, to a million. And so, in this 140 character tweet, I tweeted essentially that I said, Why are we attacking this guy? Because he's questioning a number that was rounded to a million. <laughs> Now, this, this somehow, five years later, because someone decided they wanted to attack me. I don't know if they wanted to attack me because of my position on Trump or any number of other things. Who knows? I mean, there's all sorts of reasons for someone to want to attack me. Uh, so, so this person asks me via email, telling me they're going to do the story on this. And it's, it's the night before Thanksgiving. My family's going out to dinner. And uh, we're going out for pizza, and I'm having to, to spend most of the time on my email responding to this kind of bullshit. Because I know that if the Federalists report something like this, that 
you know, it could be easily misperceived and cause a prop all sorts of problems because people don't read past the headline. No one's going to read past past the headline of uh, you know John Ziegler Holocaust and. <laughs> Which is absurd. I mean, it's just completely and totally. It's just flat out ridiculous. It's not. It's not even close to true. And so my my evening was ruined. Now, to my knowledge, this person never even responded. I sent them three emails. They never responded. They've never written a story. Uh, my guess is they're probably not going to write a story. Frankly, I'm not a big enough deal for them to write a story about this. For anyone to care about destroying me. Uh, but but this goes to this whole issue of how insane things have gotten, that somehow you're a denier of whether it's the Holocaust or climate change is another one. I got that on Twitter yesterday. I'll explain that in a second, that you're a denier, a blasphemer, a blasphemer. That, that, that's what it's all. I mean, it's like it's a religion that you're not even allowed to question. And if you don't, if you're not allowed to question, if you live in an environment where questioning is no longer allowed, guess what that means? That means that lies can easily win. It becomes incredibly easy for false stories to take hold. Not in this situation. I'm not in any way, shape, or form even coming close to suggesting that the Holocaust didn't happen or that it should be mitigated or it wasn't as big a deal as it was. No. My whole deal was I was simply tweeting a defense of a guy who was having his livelihood attacked because he dared to question a number that was rounded to a million. Had nothing to do with even the Holocaust or Judaism or Nazism or anything. Just the absurdity of that. I'm a big believer in freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom to question. Because if you don't live in an era, in a, in a situation where you can question, bad things happen. And it's not the way this country was founded. We, we, we fought a revolution to get away from that whole uh, concept, uh, among other things. And th- th- now, so that leads me to this other uh, topic where you're a denier. Yesterday, I was watching college football. This is amazing. This is so fascinating to me. I could probably do a whole podcast just on this. So yesterday I was watching college football and flipping the channels. And I found it very interesting that, you know, when you're watching college football, you literally go across the whole country and you get to see what the weather is in all sorts of different places. And I thought it was very interesting that, you know, I'm watching Ohio State, Michigan, and it's 35 degrees and cloudy. And I'm watching uh, Kentucky and Louisville play, and it's pouring rain in like uh, 48 degrees, which having lived in Kentucky, I can tell you in November and December, that's exactly the way it always is. It's always raining. You know, Ovis Presley did a song, Kentucky Rain, right? I mean, it, I mean, it's raining that time of year all the frickin' time. And then I'm watching uh, Clemson versus South Carolina, and it's like 68 degrees, perfectly sunny, beautiful. Uh, Alabama, uh, Auburn, same deal, perfect day. And oh, by the way, uh, Minnesota and uh, and Wisconsin are playing outside of Minnesota, and there's snow on the ground, and it's sleet turning into snow, and it's freezing cold. And I'm thinking, wow, in all of those places, the weather is exactly as it should be on the last day of November. Exactly as it should be. And I simply state, gee, Isn't it interesting that in an era where we're told that climate change is such a powerful force, that in these particular places, all on the same day, the last day of November, the weather is exactly as you would expect. Hmm. That's all I did. That's all I tweeted. And for the next 24 hours, 
I have been bombarded with people who are out of their minds upset with me for being a blasphemer, uh, for being a climate change denier. Uh, it is it is hilarious. Uh, and it's very, very telling. It's very, very telling because, you know, we're told that the other side is very, very confident in their position. The debate is over. The, the science has spoken. There is no question that uh, we are right and uh, everyone should just follow us and destroy our economy uh, even if there's nothing we can really do about it. That's the basic perception uh, of the other side. And yet when you simply state a basic fact of, oh, by the way, today's weather all across the country is exactly as you would expect, they go batshit crazy. They go batshit crazy. Blasphema! I mean, it's it's hilarious. It's very telling to me because that indicates a level of insecurity that is uh, very indicative that they don't really, truly have the confidence that they claim. Because, again, I didn't say climate change isn't real because one day of weather was exactly as you would expect. That would be asinine. That would be absurd. That would be stupid. And yes, even though I've been tweeted at a hundred times to this effect, I fully understand the difference between weather and climate. But this, but this is the, the part of this that I think is maybe the most important. So they, the, the, the climate alarmists, and I call them zealots, and I believe this is a religion in a large way, Again, I'm not suggesting that there is no climate change. I'm not suggesting men don't have an influence on climate change. It's all very possible. I don't think it's been proven, and I don't think there's anything we can do about it anyway or should be willing to do even if we could. But but we, we started, these, these zealots started with it was global warming, right? Global warming. And this was a problem because every time it was cold, they looked like morons. <laughs> So they realized that this was a, a marketing problem. This was a PR problem, and they very smartly changed from global warming to climate change. The, so climate change, then, in, that can be anything. That can be anything you want is climate change. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> any abnormal weather, the, the globe is very large. There's going to be, quote-unquote, abnormal weather at any moment. At any moment in time, there's always going to be abnormal weather because you've got hundreds and hundreds of different uh, weather cycles going on simultaneously. So it's a non-lose branding. You cannot lose because there's always going to be abnormal weather. And if you take credit for all abnormal weather, then there's no way to disprove you because extreme cold is also climate change, right? So so they, it used to be cold weather uh, was was an indication that maybe this isn't uh, for real. And they changed the climate change. So now I simply tweet, by the way, today's weather could not be more normal. Could not be more normal all across the United States, which even the United States is a small portion of the globe. It's all I do. And now they go back crap crazy over that. Uh, and, and call me all sorts of names and misinterpret what I'm saying. And, you know, uh, and basically I'm a denier. I, it's a, it's very close to being a Holocaust denier now in in our public discourse. And, and to me, it, it at least, you know, with the Holocaust, we have uh, photographs of, of, of lots of horrible dead bodies and records and testimony, and, and we know it happened. It happened. It was horrible. Uh, we do not know 
in my opinion, for sure, what is actually happening and what, if any, influence man has had over that. I don't, if this was in a court of law, I don't know that I could uh, prove innocence, so to speak, when it comes to there not being man-made climate change, but I feel very confident that in a reasonable court of law, I could prove reasonable doubt. There is more than reasonable doubt in that particular debate. Uh, and I don't want to get into the details of it now. I'm, I've done it in the past. I'm sure I'll do it again in the future. But it's just another indication of how this world is so PC and how free speech rights are, are really imperiled because you're a bad person. You're a bad person, and you're a person that should not be allowed in the, in the accepted uh, public discourse if you ho don't hold the position we want you to hold. That's the thought police. And, you know, speaking of Germany, and Chancellor Merkel uh, made a speech this week that was very anti-free speech. And, and so I just think everything is going in the direction where Adam Carolla's movie is really, really important. And I hope you do uh, check it out. I, I want to update you on a couple other things that I've referenced in past podcasts. Since our last World According to Zig podcast, uh, in fact, this happened on the very same day. <laughs> this is what a strange life I live. Uh, I was apologized to, which is very unusual for me. I mean, my wife never apologizes to me. In fact, she, it's it, you know, if, if she has a religion, that's probably one of the basic tenets of her religion is to never apologize to anybody, especially me. My daughters, Grace and Diana, seven and, and two years old, they almost never apologize to me. I was apologized to on the same day in fairly dramatic fashion, by both Glenn Beck... I like John, and I wish he had a friend. ...and Malcolm Gladwell. I admire what you have done, um, and I, I would encourage others to read through it and reach their own conclusions. I think that you have... If we come out of this case by saying it's an incredibly difficult case and we should never have treated um, Spaniard Curly Schultz and Paterno the way we did, I think you have won. That's uh, Glenn, Malcolm Gladwell talking about uh, my contribution to his new book, Talking to Strangers, chapter number five, is about the Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal, and I am uh, pretty much his main source there. Let me, I don't want to go into too great a detail as to why both Glenn Beck and Malcolm Gladwell apologized to me on the same day, uh, except I did reference that uh, Glenn Beck and I had had a falling out, and the, our falling out came as a direct result of the tension because of my uh, not being in favor of Donald Trump and, and him being far more in favor of Donald Trump than he ever has been for reasons that I have explained previously. I understand. I don't agree with, but I understand them. And uh, he and I got sideways over something that I was convinced was a misunderstanding on his part. And we had some a pretty nasty email exchange. And kudos to his co-host, Stu, who did a great job of, of uh, uh, trying to negotiate a rapprochement uh, or reconciliation, if you will. And I, I, I said, you know, Glenn, email's a really bad way to do this. Uh, I would love to talk to you about this. Can you give me a call sometime? And I know you're really busy, way busier than I am. And he didn't call for several days. And I thought, well, boy, that's, that's a kind of a bummer because I thought we were going to be able to get past this. And then all of a sudden... Uh, while I was driving, I got a call from Glenn, and we had a really good conversation. And to his credit, he, he flat out apologized, not once but twice, which is difficult for 
most people to do, but especially people uh, of that stature. I mean, I, I doubt very often that Glenn is forced to apologize to anybody because that's just not, not the nature of the business when someone is a celebrity and has a lot of power and everyone around them is essentially working for him. Uh, but he did so in a very uh, sincere fashion that uh, I found to be quite admirable and very much appreciated. And so uh, I think we've gotten past that. Now, as far as the Trump issue, I mean, that's just going to be one of those things where I think we both are pretty much just going to say, you know what, we're going to just try to ride this out and ignore it. Because uh, we both know there's no good outcome there. Uh, I, I am willing to take him at his word that his uh, current softening on Trump and uh, essentially support of Trump is totally sincere. I am convinced that he believes that he is 100% sincere in his support of Donald Trump. I do believe that, 100%. Now, I have told him uh, that I am I'm concerned that maybe he's convinced himself of that because it's in, in his self-interest to do so. And to his, to his um, bent, you know, adding to my respect for him, he has actually admitted, you know what, I could be right. He has not admitted that I was right. He's open to the possibility that I could be right about that. So I think we kind of have a deal where I'm going to respect uh, that he is sincere. He's going to respect that I'm sincere, but we're not going to get into it. Uh, you know, people have noticed that whenever I've gone on his uh, program, we never talk about Trump. I like John, and I wish he had a friend. Uh, we talk about other things, and that's probably for the best. Now, unfortunately, I'm a big believer that Trump's going to be around regardless of whether or not he's reelected to at least 2014, unless something happens to him medically. Uh, that's another story for another day as well. So this is not something that's going to go away, and maybe we'll have future uh, problems in, uh, with regard to this. But I did want to at least mention that, uh, that Glenn Beck deserves a lot of credit for uh, making, a, making a phone call when he did not have to. I'm nobody. Uh, I don't mean anything really to him or his show. Uh, we have this friendship and kind of a unique relationship partially because of Trump and because of the communications we've had on and off the air about it, almost in a therapy-like uh, fashion for both of us. Um, and so I, I'm very glad that uh, we've gotten past this. I'm glad that it appears as if the relationship has been maintained. But most importantly, I just think he deserves a lot of credit for taking the time to actually call and apologize. That meant a lot to me. As far as Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Gladwell apologized via email because uh, – you know, there's been some tension between him and me because in his book, he does not come out directly for Jerry Sandusky's innocence. He says the case is very murky. There's reasonable doubt everywhere, or there's doubt everywhere. I think it's. I think. It, I think he says uh, it's shrouded in doubt or something like that. In my interview with him about his book, uh, I think he went a little bit further than that. I think if you can read between the lines, I think he has more doubt than he's willing to express in a very mainstream book that was a bestseller for a couple of weeks. And uh, here's what happened. So I had gotten an email from a fan of Malcolm Gladwell who referenced how different Gladwell sounded about Sandusky uh, in my interview as opposed to how he sounded in his Oprah Winfrey interview. And I simply forwarded that email and I said, Malcolm, you might find it interesting that uh, this person has raised the same issue that I have because uh, he and I had had, uh, had communication regarding what I perceived to be something similar to that. And Malcolm was not happy. 
Malcolm, Malcolm, I'm not going to tell you what Malcolm said, but Malcolm, Malcolm's response was more than prickly. Uh, and I had two choices. I could either, uh, you know, bend on my bend on me and, and uh, grovel and say, I'm so sorry, uh, Malcolm, which is not really my style. Uh, that's probably a shock to you. But uh, instead, I said, look, uh, Malcolm, I think you've misunderstood this. And, and you're, I, think, I think the key line was I said, Malcolm, this response is not up to your normally lofty standards of discourse. <laughs> Know where the hell that came from but, but i i said uh I, I all i'm doing here is passing on uh what a fan said uh based upon their experiences and you know i i think you're taking this all wrong and to malcolm gladwell's credit much like to glenn beck's credit uh he immediately responded uh apologies uh you know i don't know exactly what he said but something along the lines of i'm jet lagged uh, i misinterpreted uh you know all's good and so uh good for glenn beck and good for malcolm gladwell uh in this day and age uh, it's highly unusual at least in my experience for people of that stature to actually uh not only have the inclination but to actually go ahead and apologize for something that uh, they didn't handle particularly well so hopefully both my uh, my relationship with Beck and Gladwell at least for today that can change tomorrow easily <laughs> could, it could change based upon this podcast uh, uh, are, are back to uh, where they were as far as Jerry Sandusky is concerned as I predicted and boy my my uh, track record on this case is about 99.9 uh, percent uh, dead on uh, you know there's been a there was a lot of media coverage over the last couple of months over the fact that Jerry Sandusky had a sentencing hearing where he was going to be resentenced because his original sentence for having been convicted on multiple accounts of uh, child sex abuse uh, was deemed to be illegal and that uh, the state Supreme Court had remanded his sentence to be uh, to be revisited by the lower court. And I have said for months, this is much ado about nothing. But the media is such a bunch of freaking morons. They think, oh, wow, he's resentenced. Uh, maybe he's going to get out of prison. Uh, uh, you know, what, what does this mean? And I kept saying, at best, at best, they're just going to resentence him to exactly what he already got. Because nobody, nobody is going to put their name, no judge that's up for re-election in Pennsylvania, is going to put their name on the idea that they gave Jerry Sandusky a break. That's just not going to happen. It's impossible. And sure enough, uh, he got the exact same sentence he already had in this sentence that had been, uh, this sentencing hearing, which had been delayed. I was not just right about that, though. I went out on a limb, and I said not once but twice, boy, oh, boy, I can't wait, very facetiously, I can't wait for the victims that testified against him to show up at this hearing and make damn right sure that he is not allowed out of prison, that they they, they throw the book at him because these people have got to be angry. Their lives have were destroyed by this monster who sexually abused them, taking advantage of them as young boys, leaving them scarred forever. They're going to be there. They're going to be there in droves. They're going to speak to the judge. They're going to be in tears. I said, none of that's going to happen. Yeah, right. I predicted that there would be that type of reaction where they're not even going to show up. And sure enough, shockingly, guess what? None of them showed up. Not one of them showed up, just as I told you they would not. And it gets even worse than that. 
instead of showing up. Now, let's be clear. If if some quirk had allowed Larry Nasser, the you know the 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 child molesting gymnastics doctor, uh, if some quirk in the legal system had allowed him to have a hearing where it was theoretically possible for him to maybe be let out or at the very least have his sentence greatly reduced, there would be hundreds, hundreds of female gymnasts outside protesting inside making sure the judge saw them, doing press conferences, the whole bit. Instead, in this case, nothing except except they had a victim's rights advocate read, read a couple of statements from some of the victims and one of their moms. Now, that's bogus right off the bat, but what's really particularly hilarious about it is I know this woman. Jennifer Storm is her name. She and I have had uh, multiple confrontations, both in person and online. Uh, She's a complete joke. She has no idea the facts of the case. But the most amazing part is that one of the people whose statement she read was victim number one, Aaron Fisher. Aaron Fisher is somebody who just had to pay a $500 fine for violating his protection from abuse. Uh, uh, it's kind of like a, um, uh, you know, it, it, he's, he was accused of abuse by his wife. And so she gets this protection from abuse, which is kind of like a restraining order in Pennsylvania against him. She's accused him of assault and rape, and she's divorcing him. And he got he was so he had this protection from abuse placed on him to make sure that he didn't do anything to her stayed away from her didn't make any threats against her he made some online threats against her was found to be in violation of that protection of abuse and was forced to pay a 500 dollars fine this is the guy this is the guy who this victim's rights advocate this super me too woke spokesperson who believes everyone's been abused and who believes that you know abuse against women understandably so is the worst thing that could possibly happen here she is unknowingly is doing the bidding for this total fraud I believe a sexual abuser himself who made millions of dollars from lying about Jerry Sandusky and she has no freaking clue. None. And yet she gets there in court. She does his bidding for him. She allows him to stay at home counting his money. And uh, and she has no idea. Because, of course, the media just go, oh, yes. Oh, the poor victims. The poor victims. Well, yeah. Uh, the entire narrative of the case is 100% upside down. And this, this sentencing hearing once again proved it uh, definitively. Just as I predicted. By the way, if I'm so wrong. If I'm so wrong about the case, why do all of my predictions end up turning right? Why? How is that possible? How could that possibly be? It can't because I'm not. Uh, A couple other quick updates. Uh, Still uncertain as to when and how Matt Lauer will be responding to Ronan Farrow's book, although uh, that is still in the works. Could happen uh, fairly soon. Uh, Looking forward to that. Uh, now, two years after he was uh, fired from uh, NBC's Today Show for something that had absolutely nothing to do with uh, sexual assault, as I've been saying for over two years. And Ronan Farrow's book is completely full of crap, which hopefully Matt Lauer will help prove uh, if and when his response to that book, his extensive response to that book, is uh, published somewhere shortly. Also, uh, obviously, we've been doing a lot uh, this year 
on the anti-Michael Jackson movie, Leaving Neverland, the fraudulent HBO pseudo-documentary, I have been uh, putting out there the idea that the Jackson estate should go above everyone's head and do a, a Super Bowl commercial uh, involving Michael Jackson's Super Bowl halftime show. Uh, I still think that would be a hell of an idea. The, uh, there's no indication that the estate ever even seriously considered that, but they're going in another direction that's somewhat similar. And it appears as if they have struck a deal with the the movie director who did the Freddie Mercury movie, uh, the Queen movie, which got you know, all sorts of awards last year. They struck a deal for that director to do a Michael Jackson movie. And I can see why this would work. I can see why uh, it's in the estate's interests and the movie director's interests. They both get a, a great deal here because... The, the Jackson estate can give them the rights to everything, making a movie far, far less troublesome and expensive to make. Obviously, the, the director did a great job with Freddie Mercury, with Queen, and he's got some cachet within the media. So the media likes him. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's not going to be someone who will be Me Too'd or attacked by by the uh, the liberal elements of the media. So he's got lots of street cred there. He's also very good at what he does. And I could totally see, especially since Michael Jackson has a huge worldwide fan base, I can totally see a Michael Jackson movie doing exceedingly well at the box office if it was done in a, in a big-time fashion. Now, how it will address the issues of sexual abuse... I would think you're doing a, a movie about Michael Jackson's life. You've got to include this. But, of course, he was acquitted in court. So it's very easy to address this issue without making it look uh, uh, bad for Michael Jackson. And, um, and you probably don't even have to really necessarily address the Leaving Neverland stuff, although I'd love for that to happen uh, because anyone who looks at this uh, halfway open mind realizes that the allegations of James Safechuck and Wade Robson are totally crap. But I actually think this is a good development. I, I, I don't think that the estate would be stupid enough to engage in this unless they knew for sure uh, what they were getting. But you know what? Uh, we'll see and something to, to look forward to in the future. Uh, one other note I want to mention, because this will be a theme for the next uh, few weeks on the podcast. I'm sure we'll do at least a couple of podcasts between now and uh, the end of the year. Obviously, Christmas season has begun. My gosh, at the Ziegler household, Christmas season began uh, <laughs> the day after Halloween, maybe before uh, Halloween. Uh, Grace Ziegler as, is as into Christmas as any person I've ever uh, met. You know her. I am the leader. Do as I say. Well, Grace is now seven, and I have made it very clear that uh, my hope is that we get one Christmas where uh, Grace is still fully in to the whole Christmas Santa Claus thing, and Diana, her two-year-old uh, sister, is cognizant enough to appreciate it. This is really going to be that year if it exists. But I'm on pins and needles, and I'm going to be spending the next month on thin ice because I'm not convinced that, uh, that Grace isn't going to figure this out before Christmas. Uh, my wife thinks I'm crazy for even worrying about this. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm weird this way, even though I'm, I'm a believer that Santa Claus in general is, is not a great idea. And I wish we lived in a world where Santa Claus didn't exist. But because she's so into it, I am really dreading the day when she figures this out, especially since, uh, you know, frankly, she's going to end up thinking I'm a liar uh, because I've been helping, not in a, in a nefarious way, but I have, I have done nothing 
to torpedo her belief in Santa Claus and the magic of Christmas. And in the next few days, we're going to see a big test. This is the test that I think is I'm going to be so nervous because we've been doing this elf on the shelf thing for the last several years. And I didn't even realize it until I saw an old Facebook posting a couple days ago that uh, we started the Elf on the Shelf when Grace was two. And when she was three, when she was three, she's seven now, when she's three, she was three, I posted on Facebook that I didn't think the Elf on the Shelf was going to have a very long life because Grace was already starting to ask questions and indicating that she thought he might be a fake. And here we are now, uh, several years later, she's now seven, and she is really, really, really hunkering to see the elf on the shelf. And I don't know if it's because she has suspicions or because she's just so enthralled that she's, you know, can't wait to see Eli, her elf, and uh, that's like the, the sign that for sure Christmas is right around the corner. I can't tell, but I am terrified that the moment she now sees at seven years old this stupid little elf on the shelf, the whole thing is going to come crashing down like a house of cards because she's smart enough and inquisitive enough and, and, and a good enough investigator that once she realized this, that Eli is full of crap, all of it, uh, just a complete and total collapse is going to occur, and uh, we're going to have a massive problem. I, I don't know that. That's my fear. Uh, I will keep you updated. But that will be happening between now and probably the next time we do a World According to Zig podcast. Until then, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please make sure you share this via Twitter, Facebook, social media, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our, our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheik's. S-H-E-E-X. Sheik's. Try Sheik's for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.